She saw the world differently than most everybody else, literally. What might have been clear for others was not so clear for her. Colors that looked one way for some looked very different from her, but she didn't know it. If you asked her if there was anything wrong with her eyes, before she met with her eye doctor, she would have said, well, I wear glasses, but other than that, I, I'm just fine. Then one day she was told that something was very wrong. Something had been clouding her vision, changing the way she was able to perceive things, something called cataracts. The doctor said she would need surgery for it. And so after the doctor had finished the procedure, she began to look around with what you might call new eyes. Uh, somehow, suddenly, like the blues were like really blue. Uh, the colors were brighter than before. Uh, a simple purple container by her bedside suddenly looked dazzling and, and brilliant. The things of beauty that were right in front of her the whole time could finally be perceived that way. And yet she had come, become so used to seeing things the old way that she just assumed that's the way that things were that there wasn't anything more than what she could already perceive. But only under the care of a skilled doctor was she able to see things in a new way, a way that now saw beauty where it could not be seen before, a way that brought joy, a way that literally brought tears to her eyes, tears of joy, all because she was now able to see the world through new eyes. The eyes we see the world through can make all the difference but what if something was clouding our own vision and we too didn't know? Not clouding how we see colors or shapes, but persons, other people, ourselves, even God himself. What kind of doctor could treat that ailment to give us new eyes to see through? You see, just like that woman's experience, how we see things that can be the difference between experiencing an absolute joy and totally or totally missing the source of it when it was right there all along. Your life has been lacking joy. You picked a great day to come uh, as we continue to look at the life of Jesus in the gospel according to Luke. Uh, it was New Testament scholar Robert Karras that noted in Luke's gospel, Jesus seems to either be going at any time, going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Meals were central to social and religious life in Jesus' day meaning what you ate or didn't eat, who you ate or did not eat with, it carried incredible significance then. And today we're going to look at a meal that, that Jesus ate, a great joyous banquet. And it comes after he had healed a man who had been paralyzed, a man who then stood up right in front of everybody and, and walked. People were saying at that occasion, we've never seen anything like this. And at the center of that glorious scene was Jesus. His social capital would have been at an all-time high, and with that much social capital, what does he do next? Probably not what you have expected. We see the answer in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So what do we see in here? 
I mean, just a few verses ago, Jesus was the object of praise, with people saying, we've never seen anything like this. And now he and his disciples are the object of complaint, being asked, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? But in that one question, we actually see three people, or three groups of people. The ones speaking, the ones that they're speaking to, and the ones that they're speaking about. And to see what this passage has to teach us, we need to see what's happening in this passage from all three of those perspectives, through three different sets of eyes. You could call them the eyes of a judge, the eyes of a doctor, and the eyes of a patient. Uh, first, in this passage, the Pharisees, a, a Jewish sect that held significant influence in Jesus' day, sees things through the eyes uh, of a judge. Uh, for them, the story begins in verse 29. They see a great banquet is being held at the home of a tax collector named Levi, uh, also known as Matthew, the author of the first gospel. On the guest list, a large crowd of tax collectors and others. The others are described in other accounts as simply sinners. And in the middle of all of them was Jesus with his disciples. So seeing all of this, we read in verse 30, that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? It wasn't a question of mere curiosity, uh, but rather a complaint in the form of a question. Now, curiosity is willing to place itself below someone, seeing people different from them as those that they can learn about or, or learn from. Curiosity withholds judgment until it has all the facts straight. But the eyes of the judge don't see differences as opportunities to learn, to be curious, but to complain. It's like they're saying, don't you realize what you're doing here? And the reason why is because uh, when we read the word tax collectors in the Bible, it means something very, very different uh, for them than it might for us. Maybe we read the word tax collector, and uh, we imagine like somebody who's working like at the IRS you know, wearing a suit somewhere, uh, or maybe someone downtown at the collector of revenue office sitting behind their, their little window or maybe mailing you a bill. We imagine that they get a regular paycheck as long as they show up uh, and do their job. But in Jesus' day, tax collector brought a very different image to mind. Uh, to start with, it didn't mean you worked for Uncle Sam. It meant working for Uncle Tiberius. That would be Tiberius Caesar, the pagan emperor of Rome, the one whose nation was occupying their land. And their job was not to ensure that everybody paid their fair share. And you see, they just had a quota. And as long as you meet your monthly quota, everything else is gravy. Anything more they collected was their income, and there was no cap on how much they could demand from any person. In other words, there was no accountability if they robbed their own people to line their pockets. It was a type of job that often attracted the dishonest, the greedy, or the outcasts. They were viewed as traitors to their own people and were not allowed in synagogue worship. Even Jesus once used them as an example of those that one would expect the least from morally. And so Jesus' disciples asked him, what are, why are you eating with them and with sinners? Uh, sinners, uh, back then, was just this general term that, that covered people who were not allowed to act as, as judges or witnesses because of a moral unreliability that they were perceived to have, a group that included tax collectors. And yet it's also probable 
that the sinners whom Levi invited, at least some of them, were so-called not on the grounds of being notoriously bad characters, but because they were not in the habit of studying and practicing the traditions of the elders. In other words, it wasn't solely based on how they measured up to God's law, but also to some human traditions. Jacob Neusner, uh, who studied the rabbinical uh, traditions that appear to come from the Pharisees, uh, notes that of the hundreds of rulings that, that go back to them, over 200 of them, more than two-thirds of the traditions that they judged other people by, were about who you could or could not eat with, with whom you could share what's commonly called table fellowship. Biblical studies professor Philip J. Long writes, Table fellowship in Judaism was a complex and important issue for the observant Jew, especially those of the Pharisaical party. But why? Just think back to a middle school cafeteria room. Who you ate with, who you associated with there could, could bring you up or could bring you down uh, because it would communicate something to others. Um, I can still remember the one day, one day, that I got invited to what I will call the cool kid table at my middle school. Sitting right across from me was the track star, uh, who was also the starting quarterback, who also had a full beard before most of us even knew what a razor was. Sitting next to him, the girl that most of the guys wanted to date. All the people that everybody knew about were, were already at that table, and the future college soccer player, who was also a choir soloist, was on their way. But when I sat down among them, and the bearded middle school quarterback, whose name is, I think, still on some of our record boards somewhere decades later, and he saw me sitting there next to him, all he could say was, what are you doing here? Unfortunately, the one who invited me, the king of middle school hairspray, um, had not yet uh, sat down yet. What bonded my usual table, uh, which included a kid who was known mostly for a very unpleasant smell, um, was that we just didn't want to sit alone. While the people at this new table really could socially lift me up, I could also bring them down. The quarterback knew that. You see, if they liked me, it was either because somehow I was really cool and no one else noticed it, or they were not that cool. I only mention that because, similar to a 1990s middle school cafeteria, in Jesus' day, who you ate with would communicate something to others. First, uh, sharing a meal together established a covenant relationship of friendship, which normally also signified approval. The issue of eating with uh, sinners was sensitive in Judaism uh, because uh, some believed that eating with such company conveyed an acceptance of their sins. As one scholar notes, such table fellowship implies welcoming these people into extended interpersonal associations, which the Pharisees thought would make a person unclean. Another scholar illustrates just how strong these views were by pointing to the days of our, in our own country of segregated schools, bathrooms, and drinking fountains, where fear of close contact with those that were not white was based on the assumption that it would somehow make another person unclean. And so laws were enacted to ensure people kept their distance. The proponents of, of those, those, those wicked Jim Crow laws and the proponents of the pharisaical table fellowship laws would have actually had a lot in common. But what's going on here isn't just that, that Jesus and his disciples might have had contact with one person on the do not eat with list. The mention of a large crowd in verse 29 implies that 
they were outnumbered by those whom the religious in crowd looked down upon, which means it was a lot less like me getting invited to the cool kid table and a lot more like Beardy McSportstar deciding he wanted to sit down at my table. You see, while socially I had everything to gain by the table I was once invited to, Jesus had everything to lose by the table he was invited to. And as you read on, you realize that it did cost him. Jesus' host later records in Matthew 11:19 how he was described by others as a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, the Pharisees saw Jesus doing something so contrary to their own ways, it just didn't make sense. And you can imagine the thought process in the midst of that. You're like, okay, how hungry do you have to be to totally tank your reputation in just one meal? Who loves eating that much? How thirsty do you have to be to accept wine from those kinds of people? Well, you know who loves drinking that much. What kind of rabbi shares table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners? Okay, maybe if his problem isn't food and drink, it's obviously discernment. I mean, who has that kind of friends without approving their lifestyle? In other words, if there was a possible negative reason for doing something, that's what Jesus was accused of. And it's the same for his followers today. Maybe nobody is judging you for what you do or don't eat, uh, but you may still find yourself judged by another person's unwritten rules. Maybe not because of whose hospitality you receive, but because of who you're hospitable to. Maybe there's a culture where you work or where you study where those with status or power and, and strong convictions use that to either shame or silence those who don't abide by the same unwritten rules. Maybe you've even experienced that in a church. If so, you know what it's like when the eyes of a judge are upon you, even if their standard has nothing to do with how God might see the matter. You see, the eyes of a judge can't always tell the difference between God's laws and their own traditions or convictions. Different practices can be assumed to be evidence of a different morality or differences in how we relate to spiritual outsiders, what scholars call missiology, are instead seen as evidence of a different theology. Do they really believe what they say they believe? Those who see the world through the eyes of a judge tend to see themselves as the arbiters of the law, a role that was off-limits to sinners. For those who don't see themselves as sinners, but as the righteous, the word that Jesus uses kind of ironically in verse 32 for those who see themselves as one of, of the good people. Others' sins and, and their differences are not seen as uh, reasons to move towards them, but reasons to move away from them, lest someone feels tainted by them, lest they risk losing their righteous status. And something, when seeing the world through the eyes of the judge, not even Jesus, sparks curiosity but complaint. So his dinner with sinners was not an occasion for their joy, but for their judgment through the eyes of a judge. The world is a very fearful place. So many risks of becoming tainted by it. So much to lose. But while the Pharisees saw Levi and company through the eyes of a judge, Jesus saw them through the eyes of a doctor. Verse 31, Jesus answers their complaint by asking them to reconsider their actions and his own actions by saying, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. That's the perspective Jesus has in verse 27 when he sees Levi at his tax booth through the eyes of a doctor. 
we learned from Mark's gospel that, that his tax booth was by the sea, which meant he probably taxed local fishermen, like the three fishermen that had just left everything to become followers of Jesus. In other words, when Jesus and the disciples saw this guy, there would have been no doubt about who Levi was, who he worked for, what he did. In their day, the sick was a metaphor for those who are spiritually unhealthy. And Jesus applies this term to the people that he's, that he's eating with, and never denying this reality. He even clarifies his meaning by saying, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, it's not because Jesus is indifferent to their moral or their spiritual state, or because he is blind to it, but precisely because he sees this about them, that he responds the way that he does. And so Jesus approaches Levi and says, follow me, inviting him to be Jesus' follower, his disciples, inviting him even closer than having no problem entering his home and rubbing shoulders with others just like him. See, while the eye of, of the judge sees others' sins or reputation, their, their sickness, if you will, as a reason to, to move away from them, keep your distance, the eyes of a doctor sees the exact same reality as a reason to move towards someone. Because a good doctor sees beyond the symptoms, beyond the, the presenting problem, to the underlying cause, to the need. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. While the eyes of a judge may only see a problem to be avoided or a person to condemn, the eyes of a doctor see a need to be met. And so Jesus draws near, so much so that he became called a friend of sinners, a title Jesus never refuted. And maybe we believe this, that Jesus seeks out sinners because he sees their need like a doctor seeks to meet the need of a patient. And maybe we picture him going about his work of forgiving and renewing and restoring people, but, but only grudgingly. Maybe we believe that he does make the first move in coming to sinners, but in the face of persistent sin, needing constant confession and constant re repentance, we assume he gets at least annoyed, if not disgusted, when people have to keep coming back to him, still needing forgiveness, still needing his grace. And if so, remember the type of person Jesus compares himself to. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland offers this illustration. A compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He has had his medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He is independently wealthy and has no need of any type of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, those who are afflicted refuse the care. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. Finally, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care being freely provided. But what does the doctor feel? Joy. Joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason that he came. So with us and so with Christ. He does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon, with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. That's what he came to heal. Thomas Goodwin writes, Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. 
See, Jesus seeks out sinners, like, like uh, a doctor seeking out uh, the sick and delights to meet their needs for forgiveness, cleansing, and spiritual health and life. He sees not only their, their sin, which would push people away, but also the need that's, that's doing this at the same time. And like any good physician, he doesn't just treat the symptoms, but he addresses the underlying cause because Jesus often sees something that others do not. So to illustrate... Um, John Entwistle, the, uh, the former bass guitarist for the rock band The Who, once made a guitar from the, from the parts of five broken guitars. He called it Frankenstein. Entwistle describes his creation this way. I put this together in San Francisco on a day off, partway through a Who tour. It's the remains of five smashed basses, hence the name Frankenstein. The neck, pickup, and circuitry are from a dead lab bass the tailpiece from a jazz bass, the pick guard from a black P bass, and the machine heads from two white P basses. It took two hours with a Phillips screwdriver and a soldering iron, and I was ranting around my hotel room and screaming, it's alive, it's alive! I used this baby from 1967 onwards through our most famous tours, and I might add, if you've ever heard the theme song from CSI Miami or New York, you've heard the sounds of Frankenstein. After Entwistle's death, it was auctioned at Sotheby's in London. It was expected to fetch about $10,000 American. Instead, it fetched a staggering $100,000. Anyone looking at those broken guitars would have assumed they were good for nothing, fit to be thrown out. It took the eye of a master craftsman musician to see their potential for resurrection. And what's true of broken bass guitars is no less true of broken people. And so Jesus calls them to himself, together, to something better. Jesus calls it repentance. He was doing it at that dinner with sinners. He continues to do so today. It's what we see in, in Luke chapter 19 when Jesus meets another tax collector named Zacchaeus. Now in a job when your income is proportional to how much you're able to extort others, Luke makes a point to say he was rich. Safe to say, he was also not Mr. Popular. His occupation had already put him out of the synagogues. But by the time Zacchaeus um, would have heard about this rabbi, this rabbi that people call a friend of tax collectors and sinners, a friend like him, he was eager to meet him but didn't know what he looked like. And so, desperate to do so, he does two things that dignified adult men did not do in that day. First, he ran to get ahead of the crowds, and second, he climbed a tree. So he could see over a crowd, he was too short to see through or, or around. And you can just imagine the look on Zacchaeus' face when in a culture where honor was given to another by agreeing to be their guest, Jesus points him out in front of everybody and says, I'm staying with him. Publicly conveying a kind of acceptance that would have been unheard of for a chief tax collector. And as Jesus sees beyond his sinful deeds to the deeper needs, like a doctor with, with a patient, he applies the treatment that Zacchaeus so desperately needed. And just like that, a man who was known for his greed became a man of tremendous generosity. And where he had defrauded others, he publicly committed to repay them not only double, which the law required, but four times as much. In other words, repentance had come because the one with the eyes of a doctor to seek and to save the lost. 
for centuries, Jesus has been gathering broken pieces of humanity, reclaiming them, restoring them, and making them into something beautiful. When John Entwistle did it with guitars, he called it Frankenstein. When Jesus does it with people, he calls it his church. And in Luke 5, Jesus is doing so in what for the Pharisees would have been an absolutely scandalous way through a dinner table. Again, Jacob Neusner observes that the Pharisees' zeal for ritual purity extended so far that they actually viewed the tables on which they ate their meals as somehow a representation of God's altar in the Jerusalem temple. In other words, for them to eat with someone was not only to declare that I have welcomed them, but to declare God has welcomed them as well. And that's what was so radical about Jesus' dinner with sinners. It was Jesus as God in the flesh declaring that God was welcoming sinners. And when you receive that kind of welcome, knowing your own need of it, then you begin to see the world through the eyes of a patient. See, if we think that we're the healthy, the righteous, one of the good people, we'll be tempted to see the world through the eyes of a judge. We'll keep our distance from those we might feel better than. We'll misread people, misread Jesus even. We'll become cynical and judgmental. But Jesus himself said, no one is good except God alone. And as both the psalmist and later the apostle Paul write, there is no one righteous, not even one. But when you know that you are the big shameful sinner, just like Levi did, like the apostle Paul did when he calls himself the chief of sinners, and then encounter the welcome of Jesus, begin to see him as a doctor and ourselves as the patients who need his care, then we too will be willing to leave everything behind to follow him. And yet we'll also find the kind of joy that, that can't be contained, the kind that wants to throw a party like Levi threw for Jesus and invite others to meet the one who had welcomed us like that, uh, fellow sinners, just like us, exactly the people Jesus says he came for. And seeing this preference for sinners wasn't just something Jesus became known for, but also his followers. The second century Greek philosopher Celsus captures well just how upside down this kingdom of Jesus is, and just how confusing that that can seem to unbelievers. In an attack on followers of Christ, he writes, those who summon people to other mysteries, his word for religions, make this preliminary proclamation. Whosoever has pure hands and a wise tongue, and again others say, whosoever is pure from all defilement and whose soul knows nothing of evil and who has lived well and righteously. Such are the proclamations of uh, the exhortations of those who promise purification from sins. But let us look at these folks, these Christians call. Whosoever is a sinner, they said. Whosoever is unwise. Whosoever is a child. And in a word, whosoever is a wretch. The kingdom of God will receive him. Do you not say that a sinner is he who is dishonest, a thief, a burglar, a poisoner, a sacrilegious fellow, and a grave robber? Apparently that had a big deal about grave robbing back then. What others would a robber invite and call? Why on earth this preference for sinners? great question. Perhaps the answer is right there in this passage. You see, Jesus knew that his critics' heart were unclean, but, but they didn't. Uh, he would later refer to the same group as whitewashed tombs. In other words, clean-looking on the outside, unclean on the inside, dead on the inside. But yet they thought themselves 
to be healthy and yet didn't need a doctor, the, the, the righteous who need no friend of, of sinners. But those at Levi's house, on the other hand, they would not have been under the same illusion. They were well aware of their spiritual need, and Jesus came for them. He said he came for them. But then he invites them, invites us, to follow him in doing the exact same thing. And if we follow Jesus in this way, being willing to associate with those that others might look down upon, seeing Jesus, uh, and seeing those that Jesus called the lost, as those that are worth seeking out, seeing the reason that religious types move away from someone as the exact same reason we should be moving towards them, sharing hospitality, uh, being an actual friend of actual sinners, starting to see the need uh, behind the uh, sinful deed that drives others away. If we follow Jesus in this way, we'll likely receive the same type of treatment that Jesus did, becoming the object of complaint, being criticized, being misjudged, even slandered, experiencing the disfavor of those who see such people and their friends through the eyes of a judge. You see, welcoming sinners doesn't mean condoning their sin, even if someone else thinks that's what you are doing. It just means that you place a higher value on their need than your reputation among the critics. Knowing all of that, how does someone come uh, to a point that they actually begin to follow Jesus in this way? Let me answer that with a story. Guy Jasani, a, a name some of you recognize, writes, When I was 18, my father, a doctor, learned uh, what it was like to be on the receiving end of medical care. He was diagnosed with cancer. His type was very survivable if caught early, which could only be known through surgery sat next to him in the waiting room before the operation. It was odd seeing him in a hospital not striding with confidence into a patient's room or giving orders at a nurse's station like a battleship commander, something I'd witnessed many times as a boy accompanying him on Saturday morning rounds. Instead, he sat in silence with his shoulders rolled and his hands shaking. You know, doctors make the worst patients, he said. Why, I asked. Because we know too much. We know the thousands of things that can go wrong that most people never imagine. Thankfully, his cancer was caught early and he survived, but something important happened when the physician became the patient, when the expert became the examined. He gained something that can't be taught in medical school or acquired from years of practicing medicine. Cancer gave him empathy. I saw his compassion for his patients grow following his own health crisis. Doctors may make the worst patients, but patients make the best doctors. Friends, when we see ourselves, the very ones that Jesus came for, real sinners who need a real savior, the sick who need a doctor, when we see the world through the eyes of a patient, we find that there's no more vantage point to look down on others in self-righteous judgment. And yet, in that, we also discover a compassion for fellow patients, a curiosity that, that seeks out the need behind someone's sinful deeds, whether in those who already know they need the great physician in their life, or even among those who, like Jesus' accusers, were no less in need but didn't know it yet. What keeps us from seeing the world in the eyes of a judge or from uh, assuming that Jesus uh, cares less uh, and has less compassion than a doctor seeing the sick is when we start to see the world with new eyes, the eyes of a patient. 
some of you might remember. In 2014, when the disease that was gripping the world's headlines was Ebola, a disease with a 40% mortality rate, Time Magazine awarded its Person of the Year to the Ebola spider. One of them lived in Maryland. We've got a picture of him, I think. His name is Dr. Martin Scalia. On a trip to Sierra Leone while treating patients, he contracted Ebola. A few weeks later, he died. But that's not the whole story. You see, Dr. Scalia was born in Sierra Leone. They were his people, a people who had survived a deadly civil war that lasted nearly a decade and took the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. And yet, working at the clinics in Freetown would have meant treating Ebola patients from the other tribes, those on the other side of that civil war, a war that caused him to once have to flee his own country. And among those, he inevitably would have treated those who had killed his own kinsmen. You could just imagine the kind of pushback that could come from those of his own tribe, asking, don't you know who these people are? What they've done? Why would you go to them? But for Dr. Scalia, the answer would have been simple. Because they're sick. Because of their need. Because if I don't go, they perish. In an interview with Methodist uh, World Communications, he said, there was just something inside of me that the people of that part of Freetown needed help. Dr. Scalia was a Christian. In love, he drew near uh, to others, not because of a perceived greater worthiness or righteousness, but simply because of a great need. In the end, he gave his life for them so that they might have life. And he learned it from Jesus, because that's what the great physician, Jesus Christ, did for him, and did for you. In coming to this earth, drawing near to sinners, just like us, identifying with sinners, not just in Levi's home, but on the cross, taking the place of all sinners there who see their need and turn to Jesus for life in repentance and in faith, suffering rejection from men on the cross so that you might find acceptance from God, suffering death so that you might have life, might have joy, and learn to see the world through new eyes. Let me pray for us.